0: Well, if you would please turn in your copies of God's Word. Uh, we're going to be jumping around a lot in the Scriptures today. Uh, we're gonna, our main text is going to be Titus 3, 1 through 7, which, if you're following along in the Pew Bible, is page 1185. 1185. But while you're turning there, I'm going to be in a different passage here. Uh, not because I'm trying to fake you out, but because I want to give you the overall outline of what we're going to be trying to do here as we are here together for our fifth Advent series now. So what I'm wanting us to do is take a look at the fruit of the Spirit. Now, we're not going to be able to cover all of the fruit of the Spirit and the level at which they would need to be in just the next four weeks, but I've chosen a selection from this list Uh, that will roughly correspond to the candles that we are lighting here for Advent, pointing out some of these things that God gives to us. And I would encourage you to look at the fruit of the Spirit as gifts from God that are given to us. So let's see what these gifts are. If you have been a Christian, you probably know these by heart, but you've at least heard them before. In Galatians 5.22, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, unfortunately for my sermon concept, this is the hope candle. And you will notice hope was not listed in this list. Uh, This is not an exhaustive list of all the things that God gives to us. But I've picked out one that I think is often forgotten which is gentleness. That's gonna be our focus that we look at today. And that's what we'll see in Titus 3, 1 through 7 that we'll read once we get there. But before I do, let's go to our God in prayer and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh, our Father, we thank you for this passage that you have given to us here today. Lord, I thank you for the sending of your Son, for the sacrifice that you have made in giving up your Son for us and Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the gifts that he gives to us. And may we rejoice and appreciate these in a new way this year. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At Christmas time, we have a very complicated relationship with presents. And the one end, when we're children, this is the part that we're not supposed to admit is our favorite part of Christmas. But when we're children, let's face it, it is. Seeing all these brightly colored wrapped boxes underneath the tree gives us an anticipation of the the joy that is to come on Christmas Day. And if we're adults, a lot of the thing still applies. Who doesn't love getting a gift but at the same time we have all rightly realized here at Christmas time it feels so overly commercialized and that Christmas has become just about acquiring more material things. What I would encourage you to do here as we look at gifts and as we look at indeed at gifts around Christmas time there is a wonderful joy that we can have when giving a child something that they want or they really need. For me though the best kinds of gifts are those that I can use throughout the year. One of my favorites that I have gotten is an electric kettle that you pour in with the water, you can boil it up, and it's ready for tea real quickly, and can make coffee. It's something that I was really excited to have, because before I had a little thing that would sit on the, the stovetop, I would forget, the water would boil out the side, turn off the flame, and the gas would keep going. It was a problem. So instead of blowing up my house, my wife has wisely switched us over to the electric kettle, uh, where if, it, if I forget about it, it just sits there in hot water. The problem that I have with this gift, however, is that I've gotten so used to it being there, it's just become up another part of the kitchen, along with the microwave and the stove, something I just don't really think about. Fill it up with water every day to make my coffee, to make my tea, and I'll often forget that this is actually a gift that's been given to me. And I encourage you to think about the same way about the fruit of the Spirit, We talk a lot about our needs as Christians to be more like Christ, to have these fruit. Notice it's fruit. It's singular. All of these things are supposed to be a part of our Christian life. It's not the fruits where we get to pick one or the other. It's like, well, I'll take love, but I won't take patience. No, you got to have both. But those things are meant to be blessings to you, gifts to you. And particularly, as we're going to look at today, is gentleness. Gentleness, I'm calling the forgotten virtue. The reason why I'm calling it the forgotten virtue is our culture has redefined it out of existence. Our culture has taken the word gentleness and made it into something that it's not. Gentleness now is being given as the absence of confrontation, the absence of any firm conviction, but is rather soft words, safe words, gently coaxing people in a direction rather than confrontation. Indeed, virtually punishment-free parenting is called gentle parenting. Someone speaking gently or acting gently we would never describe as someone flipping over tables and whipping people out of a temple. But Jesus defined himself as I am gentle and lowly. How do we reconcile gentle and lowly with flipping over tables and whipping people out of a temple? Well, listen to how one of my my seminary dean at the time, how he defines gentleness. And I think he has something going here. He says, as an expression of the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness is strength under control, power harnessed in loving service and respectful actions. One who is gentle in this sense will not attempt to push others around or arrogantly impose one's own will on subordinates or peers. But gentleness is not incompatible with decisive action and firm convictions, in which he then goes on to talk about that very incident with Jesus I mentioned earlier. Gentleness is not the absence of correction, but is the manner of correction. It's not limp-wristed lack of action, but is the heart's posture while you take decisive action. One dictionary put it like this, that gentleness is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance, or as I've defined it, as you see in your outline, the ability to live with humility. That's what gentleness is. It's a posture of the heart as you go about doing the things that we need to do. So, let's take a look at this passage together. Now we're here in Titus chapter 3, 1 through 7. One of the things that, again, I want us to emphasize and remember, that gentleness is a gift, And why is it a gift? Well, it's something that most of us do not naturally have in the way that Scripture defines it, as we're going to see here in a moment. There are some people who naturally have a softer approach to speech and things. That's not gentleness. We're going to see what does gentleness mean here in Titus 3, 1 through 7, along with some other passages that we're going to see. To give you some context, Paul is writing to a young pastor named, providentially, Titus. He's teaching them, here are the things of how you're supposed to be running the church. Chapter 1, here's what your elders, rulers are supposed to look like. Chapter 2, here is what the church is supposed to look like as a whole. And that idea is continuing as we get into chapter 3 going to apologize. There's just going to be coughing and quality of voice issues. I'm sorry, but we'll, we'll carry on. <clears throat> Thank you. <laughs> Join me. Chapter 3, starting in verse 1. He's going on. He says, remind them, that is the church, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle. There's that word and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So here is what he's giving to us this is one of the many things that he is commanding his church to be, what our Lord Jesus wants his church to look like and includes gentleness, which is as we've seen earlier was the ability to live in humility. But why does Jesus like just like quiet people? Is he more introverted and doesn't like people making a fuss? No. He gives the reason for this in verse 3. If you find it hard to be gentle, if you find it hard to remain humble when needing to correct, let's take a look at verse 3. For the reason why we need to be like this. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay, there's a lot there. Let's see what, let's break it down. When we are to be gentle, approaching one another, in fact, as it says, all people with perfect courtesy... We do this because we are reminded that anything that we don't like about somebody else is usually because of some sin factor. We need to remember, we were the same. Have you ever noticed how controversies work on the internet? When someone says something stupid or offensive, the protocol is for everyone to pile on about how horrible that person is usually by saying worse things about them than they said to anybody else. Why do we do that? Why do we need to act as if we are so upset about what this honestly stranger has done on the internet? That we have to pile on and make this happen. I've been reading a book about how the internet is shaping our hearts. And one of the things that he points out is we need to pile on shame so we can get rid of our own. We have to pretend that we would never do something like that. And how horrible this person is because we can't even imagine saying something mean to somebody else while typing hugely mean things into the comment box. On the internet, you can't admit fault. Because the internet can't forgive you. The internet never forgets. All it can do is bury. It's not gone. It's just buried. And as we have found out time and time again, there are plenty of people willing to dig to find it. The internet can't forgive you, because for the most part, when someone has said something mean to someone else, they've not offended us. It's for that person to forgive. We can't forgive them, nor can we shame them into a proper response. This is what Titus is saying the quiet part out loud, that we're all hoping in our screams against other people, no one notices that we all do the same things. To pile on for someone's sin is to pretend like we've never done the same thing. And it's by realizing that even if we haven't committed the same sin in degree, we can almost always find out we've committed the same sin in kind. We may not have said that particular horrible thing, but we've said unkind things, or at the very least thought unkind things. And it's by keeping that memory in mind is what helps us approach other people in a spirit of gentleness, recognizing the thing that they've done, we've done. And more than that, it's not just we are all a collection of sinners, but we've also, those of us who are in Christ, have been forgiven of those things, not because of what we've done. Now, this is very hard. For us, and I would say is a particular challenge, having lived in different cultures of this country, coming here in this part of the country, there is very much a sense of honor and shame here. Reputation is everything. And if you get put into the shame list, it's nearly impossible to get back into the honor side. Or if it is, it's by a lot of work that you have done to get back here. That's how human culture works. It's not just the South. That's our hearts bent. And hear what we're told. The only reason why we are different is because of what Jesus has done for us. So even if someone has committed that sin, I've not committed that sin, but I've been forgiven and I've been changed. And I'm only like this because what if Jesus has done for me? So I don't get to come to you in harshness. I don't get to come to you in pride, even as I correct. This is exactly what he's given to us. So now we have the motivation for gentleness. We know that it's supposed to be the ability to live with humility. That's great. We know that we are to be gentle because, one, we are sinners in the same boat as everybody else, but we've been delivered from that boat because of the grace of Jesus. Okay. All that's very abstract now. What does this look like practically? What does it mean to be gentle when we don't want to be gentle? When it actually seems like the thing that we need to do is to break out our kicking boots. When someone sins, we think, okay, sin's bad. We got to get rid of it by any means possible. Get ready. It's not what we see. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. There's a little bit further down from what we've just described as what these fruits of the Spirit are. Here in Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. There it is again, ability to live with humility. Then keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bearing one another's burdens looks very different than adding to that person's burdens. When we see someone who has fallen into sin, they are burdened and they need help. Not by piling on their sin like we do on Twitter, but by saying, How can I help you? The entire time keeping the check on our heart that the same thing could happen to me, but by the grace of God. That helps us have the posture to help shoulder some of this burden. Now, we can say, okay, well, here in Genesis 6, this is talking about people who are in the church. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you should restore him, implies he was there before and is being put back. So this is for the church, right? This means that outside the church we can pull out our venom, right? We can say we can get our harshness for those strangers on the internet. No, we don't get to do that either. Turn with me. I promised we'd be a lot of turning. Here in 2 Timothy 2. Let's turn to 2 Timothy 2, kind of doing a word study on gentleness here today. You want to know what a word means? Look it up and then read in all the context. You can get a sense of what this is talking about. Here in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 24 and 25 we read this And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone able to teach patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth This is people when we're talking about opponents this is probably referring to, although there's, there's some debate, about false teachers. People who are actively trying to undermine the church's mission. We would think, oh, those people, that's open season for them. We can abuse them as much as we'd like. No. Correcting with a spirit of gentleness. And notice what he says here. Patiently enduring evil. It's a wonderful illustration of what something like that might look like. And what's interesting is the gentleness part of correction usually has very little to do with what or how you speak. Most of gentleness is going to be what surrounds as you're correcting. Has anyone heard the name Rosaria Butterfield before? I'm sure... A number of you have, but if you somehow have not, she is a prolific writer today in Christianity. But before she was a writer, she was a lesbian gay activist who was hired as a literature professor to Syracuse University with the stated goal of trying to bring a normalcy to what at that time was called an alternative lifestyle. She was married to a woman and was her life's goal was to present this as normal. She was a wonderful thinker and a very incisive writer, still is today. And she was writing a book trying to answer the question, why does it seem like Christians hate people like me? And she put out an advertisement asking for someone to have this conversation with her. And someone responded, who was a pastor, his name was Ken Smith, who responded and invited her over to lunch to discuss how it is that he's come to this and and, 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 and that in fact he does not hate her but in fact loves her and would like to show how this worked. So she accepted this invitation to have lunch with this pastor and she came to Christ. Now let me ask you, how many lunches do you think that took? If you look at most Christian movies today, you'd think it was just the one. One conversation, the heavens open, and boom, we fall to our knees in repentance. It was not one. It was not 10. It was not 30. But by her own words, a conservative estimate, it was 500. That's gentleness. That is patiently enduring. That's a lot of effort to put together 500 meals for a person. That is a real grasp of knowing, of not having an inflated sense of self-importance. I know myself. I'm very results-oriented. And I would think, perhaps after meal 250, I'd begin to think, you know what? What? I'm investing a lot of time in this one person. Is there better things I could be doing with my time? It's not how Ken Smith thought. I'll bet you he'd be willing to meet with her as many years as it took. And after 500, she came to Christ. She left her wife. So you can imagine that. She's now married to a Presbyterian pastor. And is one of the leading voices in in laying out a Christian sexual ethic. If you want to read her story, she's written a a book called Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Highly commend that to you. Has written a lot of other really helpful books in this area. But that's what I mean by gentleness. Can you see how different something like that is from how our culture defines gentleness? Meeting with somebody that many times to correct error. Someone not even in that man's church. I can tell you, pastors are busy. But he puts this together. This not limp-wristed lack of action. This is a robust commitment to loving someone else. And doing whatever it takes. And she will tell you. These meals was not the pastor just capitulating to everything that she wanted. He told her the truth. He told her that what she was doing was sinful. He didn't mince words, as she'll tell you. But it's pretty easy, or it's easier, to hear of a confrontation when someone is putting food in front of you, isn't it? I'm not saying that if you have someone in your life that is living in sin that all it takes is several hundred meals and you can win them over. But if they haven't changed, have you tried that? Have you had that radical of a commitment to someone else? And now you may say, well, if if this is the call when we mean by gently correcting other people, there's no way I can do that with everyone. And you're exactly right. So what's built into gentleness is this realization of humility, of our lack of ability to force someone else to change. In fact, you would have more than a busy enough life just to do this with two or three people. But imagine if we were all about that business of two or three people. Using our various gifts and talents and social circles, acting like, I don't know, parts of a body. Be a good metaphor. This is what he calls us to do. It's what gentleness looks like. But the only way that we're ever going to be able to exercise that level of gentleness is to recognize, one, that Jesus has been that gentle with us. I mean, 500 meals is a lot, but when you break that out, that's about a year and a half worth of lunches. It's not a little commitment of time, but it's also not your entire life. You have to eat. Here what Jesus did was leaving the throne of heaven to live amongst us for 33 years. He was teaching the disciples for the last three, but he was patiently and gently enduring a lot when he was here for the first 30. Never mind the last week of his life and what that looked like. And he's done that for you. So what's our call here from Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8? Paul applies this by saying, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus who, through though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the call. Humble service. Humble slavery. As one commentator said, there's no such thing as a part-time slave. We're all full-time servants of Christ to be gentle. But it's not just looking back at what Jesus did. But it's by, as one commentator put it, by constantly looking up and seeing what Jesus is doing. Jesus is currently very gentle with you and me. And the only source of power to be gentle with those that are in our lives is by looking to Jesus for help. Having and asking for that ability to live in humility and to count others as more significant than yourselves. This will apply to to all our relationships, our children, our grandchildren, our spouses, our co-workers, other people in the church. This is how we are to interact with everyone. It's not to say that there's no confrontation when there's sin, but it's done so from a heart of humility, a heart that Jesus gives you as a gift if you will but ask. And if you're sitting here today and say, oof, I don't know if I have any of this in my life or any of these other characteristics that you've just read, well, I'm here to tell you that Jesus is extremely generous, that he will give you those things and much more. If you will ask for his forgiveness for not being like that, and ask for his help to become more and more like that, to become more like your Savior. So, this Christmas, as there will be plenty of opportunities to be harsh, when the guests are coming and the cookies are burning, When the cat's in the tree again. Remember that we can be gentle because we have been given much. And that when you are gentle, when you do see the buds of this fruit begin to form in your life, don't let it be like my kettle in the kitchen, something that just becomes part of the background. But notice that. And for every instance of goodness that you see in your heart, be reminded that that is a gift from Jesus and thank him for it in humility. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had together, for this reminder of who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be gentle, not just being quiet, but in being humble and approaching people with a recognition that we need help too, that we always need your grace. And we thank you for such a beautiful gift, a gift for us, a gift for those in our lives, and help us to use this gift that you have granted to us so graciously. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.